good start. So are we testing things out right ahead of time? What's that? Oh yeah, 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 that's fine. We'll do that. All right. Well, uh, let's uh, let's get started. Uh, <coughs> I want to start by sharing a little story of a of an, a local art, not a local artist, but an artist here in America that uh, does some amazing things. Her name is Candy Chang. Uh, she's a very famous uh, artist. She's based out of New Orleans, and um, her kind of claim to fame is to create interactive uh, art exhibits. And she invites people to come and to kind of engage in a, a really um, well laid out uh, place, space to consider things about life, to um, yes, just consider the human experience. And uh, recently she had a, a pretty famous exhibit in Las Vegas. Uh, she, she bought a little store, well she didn't buy, she rented a little storefront. And as people were walking by, she invited them to come into the storefront and she asked them to, if they'd be willing to share anonymous confessions. And she kind of cast a vision for what, for what she was doing, and she was going to show these confessions off uh, in a, a really cool space, and she was going to invite people to come into that space and kind of engage with those confessions. And um, <clears throat> so she did this for about a month, and she collected about 1,500 confessions, and she put them on little four-by-four four pieces of wood, and she, she kind of did some really nice little handwriting, and she wrote out those confessions, and she posted them up in this space. And then for a month, she opened it up for passerbyers in Vegas to come and just check it out. And uh, as I was reading through these confessions, uh, <clears throat> you know, they kind of ranged from the, the lighthearted to uh, the heartbreaking. Uh, and some of the confessions that she showcased, um, I sold heroin to my friend and it ruined his life. I like porn more than my husband does. I hate it when friends are better than me at something. I want them to be jealous of me. I was the other woman and I hate myself for it. I talk bad about everyone I know, including my best friends. It's terrible. I've wasted my life. There are so many things I wish I could take back. I treat the worst those who care about me the most. I often yell at my three-year-old daughter and make her cry. I cry myself to sleep thinking about it. I cheated to get into college. I feel like an unequipped fraud. I've had two abortions in the last year, and no one knows it. Everyone in my life thinks I've recovered from addiction, but I really haven't. According to Chang, her vision for this project was to create a cathartic sanctuary for a, this temporary community, this group of people that were going to be engaging in this exhibit any, any given time, to help them realize that all of us share in these lived experiences, these mistakes, these quirks, these, these experiences of struggle with the hope if we realize that, it will help us in some way to live fulfilled lives. Okay, that's, that's kind of what she was aiming for. And put in other words, the, the way I would describe it is, in a sense, misery truly does love company. And if even for a moment we can uh, coalesce behind this idea that all of us have things that we're ashamed of, all of us have things that we feel guilty over, broken over, then perhaps it would alleviate in some ways the torment the, magnif the, the implications of our sin, and we'll be able to kind of engage in life in ways that are less burdensome. I feel like that's kind of the, the, the gist of kind of where she was going with this. And you can't fault her intentions. I mean, she's dealing with a problem that we all experience. 
Like, what do we do with the junk in our lives? What do we do with the baggage? What do we do with the feelings of shame? What do we do with the feelings of guilt? Like, how do we, how do we navigate that? She's trying, to, she's trying to tackle that. This is a great and troubling question that every human experiences. We all wrestle with this, and we all tr- try to find answers in myriads of ways. Our world, as we've seen this week, as we magnified this week, has a sin problem. Our world has a shame problem. Our world has a guilt problem. And these problems have far-reaching implications, both in this world and in the one to come. Guilt and shame hang over our heads because of the sin in our lives. And this is true for both the Christian and the non-Christian alike. And so what Chang was trying to do, I feel like she, she kind of got a little bit of the answer in that there is a need for confession. Like, confession plays a role in us processing through the shame, the guilt in our lives over sin. I think we know intrinsically that we need to deal with this. I think there's there's something in us that says we need to deal with this guilt. We need to deal with this shame. We need to deal with the consequences that this has wrought in our lives. And you will find any number of solutions. I mean, the world proposes all kinds of reasons for how we can navigate this and why we should do it this way and why we shouldn't do it that way. You look at the self-help books all over our bookstores, you look at the talk radio, you look at the, the daily talk shows, the Oprah Winfrey's and all the rest, therapies and all the rest, the things that they teach us in the schools. How can we deal with shame? How can we deal with guilt? How do we how do we do that? The solutions are all over the place. And I think while Chang's is close to the mark, a form of confession is indeed necessary, yet I would submit to you that every solution the world has to offer for how we can navigate this successfully is insufficient. It's not strong enough. They're not comprehensive enough. They lack sufficient complexity. They lack sufficient depth. They're not, there's not, it's just not enough. And according to the Christian, according to the Christian, this problem requires a form of forgiveness and a certitude of promise that the world literally knows nothing about. Over the last few weeks, we've been uh, talking about the promises of God. We've been unpacking them together. These things that form the foundation for the only hope that we can truly have in this world. And tonight, we will consider together the promise of forgiveness and the cleansing of sin found in 1 John 1, 9. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to join me. 1 John 1, 9. John is writing to the church. He's writing to encourage them. He's writing to admonish them in certain ways. And one of the things that he says after detailing what does it look like to be a Christian, a Christian being somebody who walks in the light, who is sensitive to the leading of the Spirit in their lives, he says this in verse 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he, meaning God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Chang's project, the art project, revealed the horrible realities of sin, the guilt that follows, the bondage that keeps us there. Yet when we become a Christian, guilt and shame do not magically go away. I think there's a misconception that uh, when you give your life over to Jesus, um, you know, the burden of the, the things in your past, they're, they're immediately lifted. And there's a sense in which there is a great burden that is lifted. There's our eternal destiny is, is, is reoriented. Our outlook on life is changed. But we still, as Christians, sin. And we still have to wrestle with that daily. And I feel like there's some pitfalls that we fall into. And I think that John is trying to speak into that in this verse. And I think he's giving us some keys to help us to unpack that and to navigate that successfully. 
He uses the word if here, if we confess our sins. If you look in the Greek and you kind of do a word study, the, 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 the kind of the gist of that, what he's saying is not so much if, like it's an if else, but more when. When we confess. With the assumption being that a Christian is going to have stuff illuminated in their lives. That God is going to reveal things to us. That's going to bring us to a place where we recognize that it is a, in violation of God's law. And we will be driven to a place of confession. So when we confess, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have a problem, I think, and I know I do, with confessing sins. I think it takes on two forms. Let me give an example of how one of these forms that it takes on. Uh, I think, um, you know, it's probably happened earlier this year. I was, uh, I'm a teacher at at the high school, and, uh, you know, once in a while, man, you just have a bad day. And perhaps you have a student that, just rubs you the wrong way. Each, everybody has their own pet peeves and certain things that really bother them. And I think that was one of those days where I had something happen. And I, I think I blew up on a student or something. Just something bad happened. I just was really not having a good day. And I think life in that, my, in that time period also was a little stressful. Um, and I was going through some things uh, in my life. And I can remember uh, when the day concluded, <laughs> I was getting into my car. And I was like, man, Lord, I, I, I really need, here's what I need. I really need to go home. And I need, I need to walk into my door, and I need to see my kids over in the corner of the little playroom. I need, I need to see them just, like, playing like they love each other. And, and I need my wife to be, like, in the kitchen, kind of, like, humming, humming along to some worship music or something and cooking dinner and just, like, be really pumped about, you know, the afternoon that we're going to have together, the evening we're going to have. Like, Lord, I, I just really need that. You know, I, I just, I'm just, like, not in the place. I don't have the margin, and I just don't have the patience right now. I just, I can't, like, walk into anything but that, Lord, I need that, I need that, and I can remember pulling up to my house, and we have like a little window uh, that you can, that you walk by to get into the door that you can kind of see into the living room area, and before I even got there to assess the situation, I hear the screaming, I hear the yelling, I hear the fighting, and I'm like, no, I'm like, no, I can remember walking up to the door, and I'm like, okay, before I even open the door up, I was like, okay, God, you got to give me, you got to give me supernatural patience, like I, I need it, I'm not going to be able to do this without it. And so I open the door up, and I walk into our little uh, area, that, you know, inside that my house. And my daughter runs up to me, and, and he, she's being chased by my son. And, and she's talk, talking about the, this thing that my boy just did to her. And he's, he's crying, and she's crying, and there's just chaos. And, and I'm trying to, like, navigate it and wrestle with it. And, I, and she, like, hits him or pushes him. I can't remember which. And I just blow up. And I say, and I blow up at her in that moment. And I can remember, she's, she's already crying right? She's already like, she's already flustered. And I can remember her, her looking up to me with like eyes that are like, like what just happened? It's almost like, like, like dad, you're supposed to be like my protector. <coughs> and here you are yelling at me. And, uh, <coughs> and she turns around and she runs to her mom. And my boy turns around and he runs the other way and I'm left there by myself in the, in the entryway of my house. And I can remember in that moment, like, who am I? Like, I, I'm, I'm supposed to be a Christian. Like, this, I'm supposed to be beyond this. Like, I'm not supposed to be liable to, to one minute be this, this amazing father and the next minute be a monster to my daughter. Like, like, what do we do with that? What do we do in those moments? There's a real sense that we should enter into a season of self-loathing. I mean, if we're being honest with ourselves. Like, I should enter into a moment in that, in that time of disappointing my daughter, of yelling at her, of, of breaking, fracturing our relationship because of my impatience, because of my anger, 
because of my non-tolerance for her, I should enter into a season of self-hatred. I really should. And we see that in, in Chang's exhibit, where people are like, the only way I can process through this is to like hate myself, because I see honestly my sin. And like I'm dealing with that, and I don't know how else to deal with it, but to say, you are a mess, and you're a wreck, and you deserve to be, you deserve the consequences of your sin. I remember shortly afterwards going to my daughter and apologizing. You know, this amazing moment of grace that God says, just go and humble yourself before your daughter and, and, and at least in some way redeem the situation. So I go to her and I, and I apologize. But that in no way changed my inclination or my, des- my desire in that moment to go to God and confess. Like I was like, no, that's, that's like a cheap thing. This is, what I'm, this is what I'm processing through in that moment. I was not inclined to go to God and confess. I didn't, I didn't want his forgiveness in that moment. I felt like I needed to rest in this shame. I needed to rest in this guilt. Like, there needed to be consequences. Like, it's a trite thing, I would reason. It's a, it's, a, it's a cheap thing to just immediately go to God and confess for what I just did to my daughter. And so I remember wrestling with that and resting in that desire to not be forgiven. I needed to suffer first. And perhaps you can relate with that. Perhaps you're like, this is, that's kind of my MO. That's my default. Like when I have those egregious moments in my life of selfishness, of pride, of anger, like I need to, the only remedy for that is I need to be punished a little bit. Like how else am I going to learn? How else am I going to learn not to do that again if there's no consequences? I think we rationalize and we reason. And that's, that's kind of like the thing that, that, we, that we can, the way we process. So perhaps you can relate. Likely your scenario is a little different. Okay, maybe instead of punishing yourself, Maybe you reason that God can't just forgive you immediately. Maybe there's, there's a time period that needs to go through. Maybe God withholds his pleasure from you for a time so that you can, again, so you can learn from your mistakes. Perhaps that's your MO. That's where you go. But in either case, many of us struggle, I believe, with how to handle guilt and shame in the Christian life, in our daily lives. I feel like the problem is further compounded if we consider habitual sin. And think about this. What do we do with that? Okay, you're, you're a believer, but you're still struggling with the same stuff you've been struggling with since before you were a believer. You still struggle with, with lust or anger or, or resentment or insecurity. Like, those things are still present, and they're daily. Like, what do we do with that? We think to ourselves, okay, I just did this again. I just sinned in the same way again. I've been, I've been walking as a Christian for three, four, five, whatever, however many years, and I'm still committing the same sins. Like, what, am I supposed to just go to God and confess every time? I should be like, I'm sorry. Like, is that enough? Like, is that sufficient? It sure doesn't seem like it. Like, there needs to be more, surely. Like, I, how can we continue to do the same things and feel like we can just go back to God and confess? I feel like we reason and we rationalize that. I feel like perhaps it's less frequently, and, and God willing, it will be less frequently, these habitual sins. But it's as though they never left. They always creep back, and they always are right there, ready to grab you and take you to that same place that you've been your whole life. I think confession in this context also can seem trite. It also can seem a cheap thing to do, a thing that you should not do if you really had a high view of your sin, if you really had a high view of of overcoming your sin. And I feel like that's that's a trap that we fall into. And so over time, I think many Christians, myself included, we begin to lose our belief. We begin to lose our high view of confession and its importance and its power and our and relevance in our lives. Yet John, in our passage, tells us that when we sin, we are to confess and receive forgiveness and cleansing. I think there's a truth here waiting for us to be discovered. 
a truth about the power of confession that will completely change the way we view our sin and the work God is doing to conform us into the image of Jesus. And I think that this truth starts with a promise. And this promise, I believe, is experienced every time we confess. Okay, so let's unpack this together. Let's unpack this process of confession and the promise that I believe God is intending to lead us to become more like Jesus. Now, biblical confession essentially means agreement with God. And that's what we're talking about. When John uses this word, he's talking about we're agreeing with God over our sin. We're owning up to our sin. We're saying yes, like that, like that, that is me. I just did that. that is, I need to own up to that. God, I agree with you over this. But we must preface this, and I think there's a danger here. We must preface this by saying that none of us know all the sin in our lives. None of us do. And so there's a sense in which we are blind to any number of sin in any given day. We have no clue that we just did that. I have no clue that I'm being selfish with my daughter right now. I have no clue that what I just did with my wife was, was, was not uh, generous and graceful and charitable. I'm, I'm, it's oblivious to me. You can talk to longtime believers, and any number of them are in this room right now, and they will testify to the reality that the longer that we have walked with Jesus, the deeper the need we understand, the deeper the need that we have for confession and forgiveness. Like it just gets deeper. Like there's just so much stuff that we're oblivious to. I feel like we deal, uh, in a real sense, with a very small amount of the totality of our sin in any given day. And there would be no hope for us if the mandate from God was that we must deal with all of our sin, that we must confess all of our sin in order to receive forgiveness and cleansing. So that's not what John's talking about here. I think that's important to know before we get, before we get too far into this. It's not something that's intended to drive us into this literally insane, like, did I get all my sin confessed today? Am, am, I, am I clean? Am I clean for this day? And p- trying, to, trying to, like, just stress over our position before God. That's not the intent. It's rather intended to be a call to a state of mind or a way of life, a posture of the heart. It is an expression of the invitation to walk in the light that John has, before this verse has been trying to unpack that this walking in the light of God's revelation. Confession is an expression of that. It's, it's, it comes out of our walking with God throughout our daily lives. And this heart posture is a requisite for biblical confession. Okay, and what is the heart posture? Well, Isaiah 60, 66 kind of gives us some clues, I believe. So Isaiah 66 verse 2 says this, has not my hand made all these things? And so they all came to being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Okay, this is an amazing statement. We need to get this. If God looked out on favor, only those individuals in this world who perfectly obeyed his laws, we know that there would be no hope for us. Or if he looked down on favor only with those who are passionately all the time pursuing after his word and his glory in this world, there would be no hope for us. That isn't what God is saying here. Okay? When God reveals sin in our daily lives, the first thing we need to remember is that he does not do so to condemn us. He does not do so to punish us. He does so so that we might live. So that we might live. That we might walk in the light of his truth. And we might experience the freedom from sin, the freedom from sin that produces in us the experience of grace anew. 
the grace of God's forgiveness. Confession plays an immensely important role in our becoming more like Jesus. So how does this work? Well, I, I think it's kind of like a dimmer switch in a house, okay? You think about the, the previously John's talking about walking in the light, and the Christian walks in the light, and, and by virtue of that, the ones who aren't Christian are walking in darkness. This is, this is an assumption going into this argument where there's darkness, and we're living in darkness prior to our conversion, prior to our coming to know Jesus and we're bouncing around, and we're making a mess of things, and we're, we're walking in literal darkness, and then, boom, God saves us. And it's like he, he turns up the dimmer switch just a little bit, and light begins to be cast in, in the room of our hearts. And we begin to see the junk. It's dim, but we begin to see the junk, and we begin to deal with it through the Holy Spirit. And we go on, and we progress in the Christian life, and, and God continues to progressively turn up the dimmer switch, and more light is cast on in the, in the recesses of our hearts, and we're dealing with deeper stuff, stuff that was, that was hidden in the crevices, stuff that was hidden in the shadows that we weren't even aware of at the time of conversion, and, and we're progressively growing and growing and growing, and God is revealing more and more and more of the junk, the, the ingrained habits of sin, the, the, the old man, the remnants of the old man that are still there, the old woman that are still there in our hearts. It's like a dimmer switch. I feel like if God were to reveal everything in, in an instant, the moment of conversion, it'd probably drive us insane, seeing that just how messed up that room is. But he doesn't. It's a progressive thing. Confession, therefore, doesn't have to be something that we shy away from. I think confession, rather, is something that's laden with precious incentives. But how can we know this is true? So this is part of the other piece of this puzzle, right? As you say, well, Josh, that sounds compelling. I mean, I, I guess I, I agree with that. I think confession is a necessary component to us growing an understanding of God and, and, our, and, our, and our relationship with him and becoming more like Jesus. Like, that makes sense to me. But how can I know this is true? Like, how can I know this is not just something that, you know, Christians talk about that I see on TV once in a while when I watch a sermon or I hear uh, Josh talk about up front? Like, how can I know this is true? How can I know that God is, is truly willing to forgive and he's truly able to cleanse? I mean, how can we truly know? And I think this question could easily fill an entire sermon series. If you think about the question of how is it possible for God to, knowing our sin, knowing the, the implications of our sin, how is it possible that God can remain who he is, this holy and righteous and loving God? The Bible describes him as, as God is light. He is, he is holy. He is perfect. Yet how can he still forgive? How can he still cleanse? If you think about that question, that is one of the greatest questions in all the Bible. Like, how is that possible? How can he remain just and justify the wicked? How can he remain holy but pardon and look over sin of the individual? And I think that unlocking this and understanding how this reality can be a possibility in our lives is kind of one of the, the entryways into us understanding and having a higher view of confession and a higher view of our sanctification. If we look at Exodus 34... Verse 6, it's this great passage where God is passing before Moses, and he declares this thing about himself, and he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgressions, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? To clear the guilty would be a miscarriage of justice. It would be corrupt. It would be wrong. Proverbs 17, 15 furthers that argument. And it says this, 
He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. One of the greatest problems de facing developing nations right now is the, is the idea of corruption. Corruption is that cancer in every, any community that can literally bring it to its knees. There is no hope for prosperity. There's no hope for justice when a society is marked by corruption. And here we're saying that a God or a judge who overlooks the sins of a guilty person is corrupt, is an abomination. Here we're hearing that God's saying, I am a God of merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. But... I will in no way overlook the guilty. How is it possible then that God can give us this, or John can give us this promise in 1 John that God is able to and faithful to forgive? The world cries out for justice. The very nature of God demands justice. He cannot, as we've seen, abide in justice. Yet, we are unjust. God is love. So how does this work? I want you to go back with me in time before the creation of the world. The Bible tells us that there's Lucifer, and he is the greatest of the angels. And he wants to become like God. He wants to set up himself as his own Lord. And what happens? God enacts justice. Swift, immediate justice. And he casts out Satan from heaven with all of his followers. Shortly after that, God creates the earth ex nihilo from nothing. And Adam and Eve in the garden. And God gives them the one command to not eat of the fruit of the tree. And what do they do? They eat. And what is all the creation, all the created universe, angels, demons, the devil himself, what are they expecting from God the Father in that moment? Justice unmitigated justice. And what do they get? For the first time, as far as we know, they see an aspect of God's character they had never yet seen before. And rather than justice, God shows grace. He doesn't destroy them. And what does he do? He kills an animal, he takes the animal's fur, and he covers their shame, their nakedness, symbolically pointing us to the future when Jesus himself would do the very same thing. And then we have this narrative, this redemptive history that begins to play out in the, in the Old Testament. Story after story pointing us forward, pointing us to Jesus. We have the amazing story of Abraham and Isaac. And God calls Abraham to go up onto the mountain and to sacrifice his son, his only son whom he loves. And, Isaac, and Abraham in obedience because he knew, he knew that God had made him a promise that through him all the peoples of the earth should be blessed. And so he goes in obedience up to the mountain. And he takes Isaac, and he puts him on the rock, and he takes out the flint knife. And he's about to plunge it into his own son in obedience and faith that God was gonna, had a plan, something beyond what he could understand and comprehend. And what does God do? He stays his hand, and he directs his attention to the thicket. And there's a ram there to take his place of Isaac. And he tells him to take that ram and sacrifice that ram in Isaac's place. And we say to ourselves, my goodness, what a dramatic story that is. Thank goodness that, that's the way it played out. That's the stuff of Hollywood. And we think to ourselves, wow. And sometimes we forget, this is, this is just the intermission. Hundreds of years later, the Christ is on the, on the tree. 
God's very son, the one who's only ever only done what was pleasing to the Father, is on that tree. And we get this crazy statement from, from Jesus on the tree, and he says, on the cross, and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you were a Jewish person at that time and you had done any kind of training in the synagogue or you've sat in front of any of the teachers of the law, you would have recognized that, that phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And one of the teaching conventions back then was when the teacher would, would sit down in front of his, his group of students, he would, he would begin by reciting a phrase from the scriptures as a way to bring the attention of the listeners to that place. And say, this is where we're going to be. This is where we're going to camp out. I want you to begin to think about this because I'm going to unpack this for us together. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so the listeners, they hearken unto Psalms, chapter 22. And they didn't have 22 back then, but they knew the, they knew the verse. And if you go to Psalms 22, and perhaps if, if you're kind of a quick person, I know I'm kind of going fast, but if you can jump over there real quickly. Psalms 22. Jesus pointing us there, pointing the Israelites at that time there, cluing us into what was happening in that moment, this great prophecy of Psalm 22. And verse 1 says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. And then he, he, he's, he's crying this, it's like this idea that, Lord, where are you? Where are you in my time of need? Where are you? But then he transitions in, in verse 3, and he, and he kind of remembers, and he says, yet you are holy. He appeals to God's holiness. He says, you are enthroned on the praises of Israel. And in verse 4, he says, if, you, if you, in you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. He appeals to God's faithfulness to his people. The way he had been engaging with his people from the beginning, faithfulness, always coming through, always being there in their time of need. And he's appealing to them. He's saying, this is who you are, God. But then, in verse 6, he says who he is now. And he says, but I am a worm and not a man. I am a worm and not a man. It's as though he's saying these promises, these promises do not belong to me anymore because I am a worm. You think, what is the significance? What does it mean to be a worm? We don't use that language anymore. Well, think about what a worm is and think about where a worm lives. A worm lives in the ground. And what does a worm eat? A worm eats dirt. It's a symbolism that Jesus on that tree is saying, I no longer can make claim to the promises you've set forth for your people because I am dirty on the outside and I am dirty on the inside. Jesus became a worm. Jesus became sin that we might take hold of the promises of God to forgive and to cleanse if we confess. When we 
confess. It is my contention that we must camp in this reality. We must camp in this reality that God has predisposed himself to us in love because of the redemptive work of Jesus on that cross. Our first incentive, this is one of the beautiful incentives to come to God in confession, is the reality that God has bound himself to forgive us and to cleanse us from sin because of what Jesus did on our behalf. And some of us right now, if we're to be honest with ourselves, some of us need to confess our lack of faith that God is able and willing to forgive. I know in that moment I needed to confess my lack of faith. Not only did I need to confess what I did to my daughter, I needed to confess my lack of faith for tearing in that place, in that space of, of self-hatred, of self-loathing, of not believing that God is willing or able to forgive me. Some of us need to run to Jesus and confess their feelings for, that God's forgiveness is conditional, that it's, it's, there's strings attached, that there's hoops that must be jumped through before it is extended to us. I want you to know, guys, that you, and as I'm preaching to myself as well, we are forgiven. Like, we're, we're forgiven now. What Jesus did on that tree, he paid for sins in the past of your life, the sins you committed today, and the sins you're going to commit on to the future. You are free from the penalties of sin because of him. There are no conditions. We have finally walked through a door that this world knows nothing about. It's a door of unconditional love. You're just loved now. If you're in Christ, you are loved in an unconditional manner. There is nothing that you can do to make God love you anymore, and there's nothing that you can do to make God love you any less. It is constant and secure. Those who fear to come to God in confession take heart that the one who you come to is the one who died for you. The one you confess to is the one who gave his life for you. Always come to him. Never be ashamed. Never be afraid. And never presume that our sin is greater than the sacrifice that was made on our behalf that we might be clean. So we start there. We start with an unwavering confidence that God will forgive and cleanse. But we need more than forgiveness. We also need cleansing. And you say to yourself, well, what does a cleansing mean? What is, he t- what is he talking about? And basically, essentially, he's talking about the breaking of the power of sin in our life. Now we're entering into the realm of habitual sin, those things that you can't seem to break, those sins of lust and pride and vanity and insecurity and, and faithlessness that we just can't uproot. We're dealing now in that realm. Like, how does God deal with those things? He does it through cleansing through the breaking of its power. We need conquering of habitual sin. Jesus came not to just take care of the death penalty of sin, but to take care of its power in our lives. John is referring here to the removal of sin's power. The ingrained habits of sin that persist even after conversion, Jesus has come to deal with. There's a spiritual washing, if you will, to get rid of the defilement caused by sin in our daily walks. The reason Jesus took up our sin debt was to conquer and to set us free from that sin. And so how does it work? Well, let's read our text again. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the cleansing, how does confession lead to cleansing? Well, if you think about every sin, if we consider sin in general, every sin of omission and commission boils down, in its essence, to us looking to other things 
instead of God for our joy. If we start from that place, then seeking the, so for example, seeking the approval of people because we don't feel or truly believe in God's approval with us in Christ. Or it could manifest itself this way, the desiring of power and control because we do not trust that God is good and truly in control. Or the lusting over things because we don't think that God is a truly benevolent provider, the giver of life, the person who is a source of everything that we need for everlasting joy. John speaks in the previous verses of our need, the previous verses from verse 9 of our need for walking in the light of God's revelation. It is a call to live in a realm utterly foreign to the world, a place of clarity of mind, a place of unfettered, a place that is unfettered by the bondage of sin and the specter of fear and doubt. Practically, the more time we spend living and engaging in the life of Christ, the more we will begin to realize that Jesus truly is better, that he is better. Confession brings us back to this place. With whatever clarity God has gifted you with this today, at this very moment, as it relates to your sin, he is calling all of us to confess everything that we know with a contrite heart that we might return again to the place of life and freedom. If you are a follower of Jesus here today, this message is for you. God has given us a great incentive to run to him in confession. God is making a promise to us tonight. Take heart, always run to him. Run to him to experience his grace. Allow his grace to unchain your hearts from the guilt and the shame. Condition your hearts to return back to him in confession of faith. Go to him with comfort, knowing that the one who you go to died for you. He will increase and you will indeed decrease if you do that. If you are not a follower of Jesus, maybe you're here, someone invited you, you didn't quite know what to expect. Um, maybe you came, your heart is burdened. You do resonate with the people in the art exhibit, sharing their confessions anonymously, but still sharing them with some hope that in so doing, they might find some relief from their stress of their sin, relief from the guilt of their sin, the shame of their sin. Maybe that's you. Maybe God has begun to work on your heart. Maybe that's the reason why you're even here, because you're looking, you're searching, you're seeking for some answers. You've realized that the answers the world has for you are insufficient. Maybe you're wondering if there's hope. And, I, and I, it's a beautiful thing of the preacher that, that gets the opportunity to say there is hope. There's hope. There's hope for you. You have the first seeds of repentance in your heart. You are, God is beginning to work in your life. Believe in Jesus. Like he's the only way. He's the only hope that we have. If that's you tonight, I want to end with this. And I hope that this uh, resonates with you. Uh, John Flavel, he's a, a Puritan theologian. And uh, he, he once wrote a, a fictional account of uh, a supposed conversation between God the Father and God the Son in, in eternity past. And uh, let's, uh, let's consider this conversation together. It starts with the father. My son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lay open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? The son, oh, my father, such is my love too and my pity for them. 
that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their guarantee. Bring in all thy bills that I might see what they owe thee, Father. Bring them all in that there may be no after reckoning with them. Did we catch that? He's saying, bring in all the bills. I think sometimes we, we take on, in, in life in general, we take on responsibilities that are a little bit beyond us. And we say, yeah, I'll do that, but we're not quite capable of doing it, and so we kind of go in blindly. Well, in this case, we know that Jesus went to that tree knowing intimately what it would cost. We see that in the garden. We see that in him asking God to let this cup pass from him. We see that in the tears of blood. We see that he knows what's coming. He knows what it will cost. Yet what does he say? He says, I will be their guarantee. Show me, Lord, what they owe thee, that there may be no after reckoning with them. At my hand shall thou require it. I will rather choose to suffer thy wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all their debt. And Jesus became the worm. He became the snake lifted up in the desert. He became the scapegoat that was cast out from the community to wander the desert until it died. He became a curse. He became sin for us. And the father says this, but my son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare thee. And the son, content, father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I and I alone am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, though it empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. This is truth. The truth that fuels the promise that we looked at today, the truth that fuels all the promises that we'll look at in this series, that God is both faithful, that God is able to forgive. I would encourage you to measure this against any other thought system in this world, any other theory or solution to man's problem of guilt and shame, and you will find that every other solution comes back wanting. There is nothing so complete, nothing so beautiful, nothing so compelling as God's solution to sinful men that provides the basis for forgiveness and cleansing. Let's pray.